Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Now, we have lived through the gravest national emergency since World War II. Around one in 500 people over the last year have been killed by COVID-19. One of the worst disasters on the face of the planet during the course of this nightmare. Now, a new book is out called Failures of State by two excellent journalists at the Sunday Times, Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot. And this book looks in devastating detail about how the British government turned what would always be a very difficult situation into one of the worst catastrophes on the face of the earth. Uh, From the very beginning, it it pieces together the story. It's like a horror film. Uh, I mean, we we know we've we've lived through misery, but just just seeing how the government failed at every single possible opportunity, delaying lockdown over and over again, making sure that we ended up with longer, more protracted lockdowns, worse economic devastation and a bigger loss to human life. I won't go on because you really need to listen to this. You need to listen to these two authors who've spent so much time speaking to so many people from the very top uh, to the NHS, uh, doctors, experts, everyone. Uh, It really is a comprehensive look uh, at at how we ended up in this terrible, terrible state. Uh, Just a bit of housekeeping. Uh, For those supporting us, uh, we're currently doing a documentary in fact about companies which have profited from COVID-19 on uh, patreon.com that really that enables us to do our work so thank you so much for those who haven't go to patreon.com forward slash own jones 84 or you can use the support function in the description please do uh, subscribe to the podcast and give us five stars so more people uh, will listen you can also watch the videos on the youtube channel so do subscribe to that as well uh with that done, listen to this. It's really important. Now, Britain has one of the worst death tolls on Earth, one of the worst death rates on Earth, and one of the worst economic consequences of of any other country. Uh, one of the most catastrophic handlings of the pandemic has had catastrophic consequences. And I'm very, very lucky to have with me these two authors whose new book, Failures of State, really exposes in in brutal and pretty grim detail every single step of the way how a disaster was turned into a national catastrophe. So thank you both so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thanks, yeah. Let's start, shall we, with... Um, because what, what your book does is it obviously above all else focuses on what happens as in the aftermath of the virus in Wuhan first uh, news reports appeared on the 31st of December 
2019 as people were out off for their New Year's uh, partying. It seems like a, a, a completely different universe, a, a lost world, the before times, um, uh, where the front of, uh, of the Times newspaper, your sister paper, spoke of a, of a wave of optimism uh, for 2020, which obviously is not quite how it panned out. But there's a broader context, and that's austerity. So do you just want to both talk about the context of years of, obviously, the the economic prospectus of the government since 2010, the economic programme, and how that left Britain underprepared for what hit it? Well, we, we always believed that we had the best pandemic plans in the world. We were quite arrogant about it. We kind of thought we, that if, if some sort of, Terrible. I mean, it, it, it was always the number one threat that there would be um, some sort of pandemic. It's kind of it could be the, it's the worst worst thing that could possibly have, and we were supposed to be prepared for it. Um, and there's no doubt in the kind of um, in the years after nine eleven that we were quite prepared for it, and quite a lot of money went into pandemic uh, planning over those years up to up to around about 2012. Um, and then it kind of fell by the wayside because of, as you mentioned earlier, austerity, um, because, um, you know, at the time when they were cutting everything, uh, things, things that weren't an immediate problem, such as, you know, the, the threat of a pandemic, were, were, became second best. And, and so all the kind of the stockpiles of uh, PPE were, were, were dwindling. I mean, you know, it was quite funny when you came, when, when it was actually dragged out um they put labels over it and then they up to you know kind of sell by you know 2012 and a new label sell by 2014 and then another one actually by the time by the time it came out of the pandemic um and so uh so the money wasn't going into preparing for it so we didn't have we didn't have a good infrastructure um but and, and you may want to get onto this but there was also there was also an obsession at the time and then in later years, from 2016 onwards, um, with a with with planning for a No Deal Brexit. And, so yeah, I mean, I, yeah, go for it. Sorry. Yeah, and I mean, and and and, and 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 that became the obsession. I mean, it, not a pandemic. All the emergency planning went into the idea in, into the into um, Brexit emergency planning because all those years we did think we might pull out that deal. It might be catastrophic, etc. Um, and so, when you so if you then go forward to December, when the virus starts to come into to um, uh, the you, in, in, into China, uh, this is December 2019, isn't it? Um, you, and then into January, we're kind of we're not exactly in the best place to to handle a pandemic, although we think we are for some reason. I mean, as you you write about the preparations for No Deal Brexit, consumed. A huge amount of time and resources and and i mean george maybe add a bit on this if i was to play devil's advocate uh often taking the corner of the government as you both know but uh you know we were overdue a pandemic of course we all know of course about the uh the spanish flu pandemic of 2018 of 1918 which killed more people than world war one and clearly we were overdue for a, a pandemic but wasn't it more like, you know, was it so unreasonable to to believe it would be a flu pandemic, that actually a, corona, a coronavirus pandemic, not necessarily something people would be 
would be expecting. So does that let the government off the hook a bit that actually it was more rational to expect a flu pandemic, which has a specific approach rather than a coronavirus pandemic? Well, I think it was uh, would have been logical to prepare for both. You know, there was um, the SARS crisis in the in the early two thousands was incredibly serious, and so it was it was and it was absolutely clear that therefore it could be could be flu or, or, or coronavirus. So to put all our eggs in the flu basket did seem unwise. But you have to remember that you know when we, when we actually did our risk assessments of what was um, the major threat to the country. This was, by all the um, emergency planning experts, judged to be the most, um, the biggest threat to the country because because they could see the the implications, what the implications could be, um, you know. And we've seen that over the past years. It's turned into the biggest crisis the country's seen since since, since the Second World War. Um, and certainly in twenty sixteen, when they had their last um, pandemic uh, practice. Um, cross-government can, uh, pandemic practice called exercise uh, signals. It was absolutely clear that we were completely unprepared in terms of our PPE and in terms of the uh, provisions for protecting the elderly in care homes um, and the concerns around the ventilators. Um, but of course, that was that was the the same year that we had the the Brexit referendum, and. Um, and the priority went on to the on on, on to no deal Brexit, and, and uh, we spoke to for the book in, in um, to emergency planners who had been involved in trying to um, ensure that the government wasn't completely neglecting it over the last few years, and just finding that their meetings were just being bumped for no deal Brexit planning meetings instead, and and they talk about um, you know talking to doctors and hospitals and things and discussing the, the possibility of a pandemic. And uh, one, one, one of the um, experts we spoke to said it was, it was their sweatiest nightmare was um, the arrival of a uh, pandemic of this type because, because they could see how eroded our, um, our preparations have become. Now, let, let's talk about January and February 2020. And obviously now we're a year almost since exactly since the lockdown, the national lockdown began, but January and February, because, you know, at that point in January, I suppose it began with rumblings in the distance of thunder in the distance. Um, we, we know what, you know, within the first couple of weeks, you get the first death, you get confirmation of human to human transmission. Uh, clearly at the end of December, it was a cluster of pneumonia cases, which was unexplained, which was reported uh, to the World Health Organization. But in January, things develop quite quickly. And you get the lockdown, of course, in Wuhan, uh, stories of people being, uh, um, you know, literally welded into their homes. Uh, and it seemed like a surreal, distant nightmare to, to lots of people at that time. What was going on in January? What was going on in the government? And what were the sorts of warnings that could have been heeded at that point? Well, and it it seemed pretty clear that this was quite serious, and there were kind of um, many, many kind of scientists who were actually tweeting at the time to say, "Oh, this one's serious. Look, maybe it's the big one. We've got to, we've got to take this seriously." Um, um, because I mean, it was quite obvious that I mean, China didn't cover themselves in, in glory because initially they didn't admit that there was human to human. Um, uh, co- contact would cause this virus. They, um, 
and it took it took several days before that happened. But it was obvious that that this was happening because the doctors in the hospitals were were, were getting uh, coronavirus. Um, and then there was this—I don't know if you remember it—but that extraordinary scene of the uh, of all the bulldozers making an emergency hospital in nine days, which was you know something really calamitous was going on, um, and it kind of kind of it, it needed it needed urgent action, and and they did at the end of January, uh, January the twenty-fourth, um, actually call a cobra meeting. Um, I think we've written before, of course, um, the Prime Minister didn't turn up to the COBRA meeting and uh, Matt Hancock Hancock breezed out and said, well, the threat was really low um, and there was was nothing to worry about. And I think what was going on at the time in in, in the Conservative Party was that, um, if you remember, January, of course, was the big month for them. That was the month they were going to deliver Brexit. At the end of that month, that was it. And that was where all their concentration was. And that certainly was where... The leadership's uh, concentration was, and so there wasn't any real, I mean, any real thought given to the possibility that this pandemic might suddenly come over here. I think they kind of, I think they dismissed the threat to a large extent, and and given what we'd said earlier about our, our you know, poor preparedness, and the fact that we allowed all our stockpiles of PPE etc. to dwindle, and our, our our emergency planning was kind of in abeyance. They needed to hit the ground running at that point, and they didn't. Um, it, they just kind of watched it steadily. There was very, very little di- uh, little happening. I, th- I seem to remember, George, didn't Matt Hancock once explain to us the, the few things that he did do in that time? And it was pitiful, wasn't it, I think? That's right, yeah. They, um, we wrote our first article, the government um, wrote a uh, two thousand word blog trying to um, undermine undermine the reporting, and they tried to uh, the uh, Department of Health produced a list of all the things where they which they said they'd done, and actually it was significantly less than we'd actually reported. Um, so it actually kind of undermine their own case. I mean, on the twenty second of January, at that committee, they heard that Chinese scientists at that point were warning the virus on average, would infect another three people. So they already knew at that stage it was far more infectious than flu. And yet at the same time, you had, was it three weekly direct flights coming in from Wuhan at the time? What does that tell? I mean, so they knew. It's very important to say, isn't it? It wasn't by that point, because I think the problem is it's very easy for those defending the government's record to say benefit of hindsight, but it's important to get the timeline right, as your box so brilliantly does, which is at that point, by January, mid-January, they knew this was extremely infectious. And yeah, and, and Neil Ferguson at the time was saying that a 60% cut in transmission, uh, Professor Neil Ferguson, of course, uh, transmission rate was needed, which meant the strictest possible measures. So they knew it was very infectious and they knew very strict measures would be needed in order to deal with it. That's right, and and Professor Neil Ferguson, you know, the results showed that it was more infectious than the Spanish flu um, in 1918, which had um, killed up to 100 million people. Um, and so the alarm bells were being rung, um, you know, really hard by um, the government's own. The government, you know, Professor Ferguson was the government's chief moderator at the time, um, but um, 
Matt Hancock came out of that COBRA meeting and said that the risk to the UK was low at that point. Um, but uh, subsequent studies have shown that um, that thousands of people were allowed to fly in from um, from Wuhan and even more from hotspot cities in in, in China more broadly. Um, and so I mean, that that just seemed like a very obvious precautionary step to take is just to cut off flights from the one city where where they were building a hospital in in five days to try and um, desperately try and provide care for the for the thousands who who were um, dying of the virus. So uh, that, that it, it, I remember at the time it, it did it, it seemed hard to understand what, what the rationale for was for that. Now at that point, other European countries were beginning their emergency procurement arrangements, weren't they? that Britain didn't come up with that program to protect frontline staff till March. What's going on? Well, you you then went into February and, and nothing happens in February, as far as I can see, as far as we can see. I mean, it, when we first started looking at this, we, in fact, actually, February was how we kind of got into it because we were asking ourselves, where was the prime minister in, in, in February? We, and and, and it, it, there wasn't an awful lot of evidence of him. And there's certainly wasn't an awful lot of evidence of him engaging with the the virus. Um, But the one thing he did do was that um, on the Monday after they delivered um, Brexit on the Friday, uh, so it was was a Monday very early in February, I can't remember, is he gave a speech um, in Greenwich. And in this this speech, he talked about how... um, he was. He would. He would don the outfit of Superman, and he would rid the uh, the world of this kind of fear of an irrational panic about such things as the coronavirus. Um, he clearly didn't consider it to be a serious problem, and in fact, he thought thought it was a hindrance and a nuisance, which um, which might get in the way of Britain's new era of free trade um, after delivering Brexit. Um, and so, I mean, and, and it falls down from there. But nobody is nobody is doing very much at all. I mean, I you know, we talked to people within within um, Downing Street who was kind of were saying things like, um, you know, it can't be the big one because because nobody's doing anything. You know, it, it can't be that serious, um, um, which was extraordinary. And so, and of course, uh, and, and then in February. Um, Boris disappeared for a while, and he went off on a holiday for a while. Um, he uh, he had quite a lot to attend to. His his, his complicated uh, personal life was was catching up on him. I mean, he had several things going on at the time, um, and so February is kind of like it's like time holds still in February in terms of the response to the coronavirus. I mean, that was the month where the first. On Valentine's Day, the first uh, person dies in Europe, uh, and then you get, you know, a, a outbreak gathers place, pace in Italy. So it, it, again, at that point, because I think people think again with hindsight, it all congeals together as one. But it was clear in February this had arrived in Europe. You already had deaths and the beginnings of the outbreaks in in northern Italy, in which you had localized the attempt to suppress the virus. Sorry, George. That's right, and and you compare that to you know the, the what the prime minister was doing. So through February, uh, so through, through the end of January and through February, there were there were four more Cobra meetings. And you know the the prime minister's job in this you know is to 
when the country is facing a massive crisis, it, the most important job he has is to take it seriously and make sure the country tackles it properly. And you know, his great hero is Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill's great achievement was that he managed to foresee the threat of Nazism um, and predicted it and then acted to quell it. But Boris did the exact opposite. And in, in those subsequent, I mean, the first cable meeting we discussed on 24th of January, he was instead, instead he was celebrating Chinese New Year with the Chinese ambassador um, a few meters away um, out the front of Downing Street. Um, the, the next one, he um, instead he attended a Facebook live event in which he was kind of pontificating about Shakespeare and Elizabeth I. Um, the next one, um, he was posted a jokey video about whether Boris Johnson was for or against Brexit. And on the last one, which was in the middle of February, uh, instead he took a call from the Chinese president who wanted to thank him for the fact that Britain had given hundreds of thousands of pieces of our PPE kit, which we'd need in just a few weeks desperately. Um, it sent it off to sent it over to China as a donation. Um, and it then took us a couple of months to, to buy buy our donation back. And by then it was too late because uh, many health healthcare workers had died of the vi from the virus because they didn't have the right protective kit. So um, and, and what the Danish insider says that the problem is, is that you know, you can even if you want, if you are, even if you try and make efforts to, 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 to sort of uh, enact our pandemic plans, if the prime minister is not engaged and people can see that he's not interested in, interested in the, in the issue, then things just don't happen in the same way as they would if he did, and and that was that was the great problem. And then so you know, he then came back from his holiday um, in the, in the far, final week of February, and again, rather than finally hold a Cobra meeting to address the issues and you know, that you could foresee in Italy. You know, the first thing he did when he came back was um, attend a, a fundraising ball for the Conservative Party, in which ironically one of the um, the lots uh, that the donors attending the ball could win was a holiday to Northern Italy, which is exactly where the um, where the, the the pandemic was was at its worst in Europe at that point. I remember, I have to say, the mantra at the time that was kind of popular was, well, in Northern Italy, they've got an older population, they kiss each other when they greet, they live yeah. at home with their parents, all these self-delusions that were propagated. But yeah. by the end of February, you got, you know, the Ireland versus Italy Six Nations matches cancelled. I looked through to talk to myself uh, on YouTube, the various football matches taking place in across Britain at the time, absolute rammed stadiums all the way through. Now, at the beginning of, this is the beginning of March. This was the whole wash your hands, sing happy birthday. I mean, it is, I have to say, this book is, it's, it's painful to read because it, it's, it's a very near history. Uh, uh, but, to, you know, it's like, it's, it is a horror film. It's, it's like reading uh, a horror story, uh, which we're currently, currently still suffering the consequences from. But this extraordinary moment, when, on national television, he boasts of shaking hands with COVID patients. He goes on this morning, he shakes their hands. You know, I know that, you know, the fact he goes to Twicken in the England versus Wales match, the Cheltenham Festival later cites his presence at that particular game in order to justify them going ahead. I mean, it's a little, it's, you know, these aren't small things. It's the Prime Minister. And, you know, what he says sets the tone for what everyone does across the country, Cheltenham being one example. Yeah, and he'd been told quite clearly by his scientists 
But he, he had to set an example in terms of shaking hands. And shaking hands was one of the first things that we got rid of. And it was you know, shaking hands and washing our hands, if you remember at the time, wasn't it? And we, so, so, we, so that was why we were all doing the kind of nervous kind of elbow bumps at the time. Um, but he kind of totally disregarded that. I mean, I kind of, I, we were discussing this earlier with George, George because he, because, um, we have a prime minister who, whose hero um, was the mayor of Jaws. And, and the reason that the mayor of Jaws is a hero in his eyes is because um, he refused to shut the beach when um, uh, the big shark was eating swimmers. And this was regarded as a kind of brave, bold gesture. And and I think I think you know when I, I read something this morning um, from from the BBC a quote saying that um, he he was overheard telling people just to ignore it, i.e. the 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 um, the, pa- the pandemic, um, because it was you know it was it was just another of these kind of scares from the east. Um, he I mean, he really just didn't take it seriously, and even even at the beginning of March when he was shaking hands. And by then, after missing five COBRA meetings, he did actually attend the first COBRA meeting in either at the end of February or beginning of March, I can't remember what it was. Beginning of March. And, um, and uh, at that point, by, by the beginning of March, he attended that first COBRA meeting and they came up with this mitigation strategy, as they described it. Um, but it was effectively a, a herd immunity strategy. And the extraordinary thing is, is that by the 2nd of March, uh, again, Professor Ferguson um, had d- done the modelling on the on on the, the results of that strategy and, the, and the, pr- the predictive results, and the outcome was 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 awful. I mean, they, however, they modelled it. They couldn't see a scenario where we'd have less than two hundred thousand deaths um, in this country through 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 that wave, um, and they expected. The modelers expected the government to then turn around to them and say, "Okay, well, can, can we have a look at what they did in Wuhan, for example? You know, would would a, how would a lockdown change 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 the numbers?" But they didn't, and they just seemed to be happy to pursue that strategy with with, with the knowledge of that um, tragic fallout. And so, the modelers and Neil Ferguson and uh, Professor John Edmonds um, at London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine then took it upon themselves to model a, a lockdown scenario. And uh, by that second week of March, they were able to present the government with the results, which was that they reckoned that there would be around 50,000 um, deaths, so a quarter um, of, of what their herd immunity strategy was um, predicted, predicted to uh, result in. And so that then put a great deal of stress on the government because you know, if, if it had emerged that they would have deliberately ignored their advice and, and pursued a strategy that would have caused four times the number of deaths, it would obviously have been politically disastrous. Um, but the other, the, other, the other crucial thing was that um, there's a um, Professor Stephen Riley at Imperial College London, who's also on the government's uh, modelling committee, um, had also analysed the implications of delaying lockdown um, and... Uh, by the end of that first week of March, he delivered a paper which showed that the herd immunity strategy was completely was completely futile because even if you um, just allowed the virus to rip through the population, it would incredibly quickly o- overwhelm the hospitals. And that meant that 
if people could see that they wouldn't get the care they needed, they would impose their own lockdown on themselves. And so you wouldn't get, you wouldn't get, achieve the herd immunity you were aiming for. And all that would happen is you would just have more deaths and you then have to have a longer lockdown because it would take more time to bring infections back under control. And so it'd be the worst of all worlds. So he'd been, the government had been warned of that by the end of that first week of March. Um, yet it still took another um, two weeks for them to, to bring in bring in the lockdown, which, which turned out to be the, the single most important reason why we had the most deaths in Europe and the worst economic fallout in that first wave. Because if you remember during that period, what was happening was, was the mitigation strategy you mentioned. I mean, I remember when we first went back through it, we watched all, we watched every word the government had said in terms of their press conferences and et cetera. And, and it was all about, we will act, we will bring in measures, but we're not going to do it now. We're going to do it sometime in the future. And there was no logic at all for that. If you, if you think about what's, what, what is the purpose of allowing infections to spread and grow, et cetera. And, and what was quite clear, and it became quite clear in, in, in that crucial week, uh, I think we, the second week of, um, of March, um, was that because some government figures actually kind of named it, they, they said this was a herd immunity strategy. And it was. I mean, they, they, were, they, they decided to treat it as if it was flu. Mm-hmm. And the classic way to, is just to let flu go through the population. and um, Infects loads of people, and then, then eventually, you know, sixty percent of the population might um, not be infected, and you'd have a you'd have a certain immunity in in the population. Um, but what what was clear from this, and what the, what the scientists were telling them, was that was that this is not flu. This thing kills people, and your hospitals will soon be absolutely chock a block if you if you do that. And then and then the whole thing will grind to a halt, um, and and, and but they were, that was that was kind of that was the that was going on until probably I think it was March the fourteenth was the turning point, wasn't it? That Saturday morning meeting in Downing Street. I mean, on herd immunity, just quick. I mean, I do think there's been ex- extensive gaslighting over whether this ever happened because of Robert Peston, the ITV political editor. Not having to go ahead, but he did obviously write an article based on government briefing uh, about. Uh, herd immunity. That was the strategy of the British government in minimising the impact of COVID-19 is to allow the virus to pass the entire population so that we acquire herd immunity. That was briefed to him. BBC political editor Laura Kunisberg uh, tweeted out a video which went viral to her million plus followers. Um, Curious, it was a video uh, channel with about a thousand subscribers. He was a foot specialist, a podiatrist, named Footman 447. And it showed him with some water, and he was using this. He, he thought he's so clever. He got this jug of water, this, uh, and, and then he was trying to explain herd immunity, and if he pour this amount into the water, it was human life. Extraordinary. I, I, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say Lord Cunnersburg did not just randomly go on YouTube and find a foot specialist called Footman 447. With I think that was presumably given to her by, by perhaps... Maybe some influential figures who thought it was a good way of popularizing the government strategy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a huge thing. A lot of the media, this is what I know is there's an emerita, uh, which I don't observe about journalists not criticizing each other, but systemically, there was a media failing at the time, was there not, to critique exactly what the government was doing. And anyone, I was on the show with Caprice on, on uh, Channel 5 when uh, she um, 
in, she suggested to uh, that maybe the, the Asian style lockdowns were the way forward, and then she was ridiculed. It wasn't it wasn't the best moment for the British media, was it? Well, to be fair, Owen, that video was actually um, uh, retweeted by Nadine Doris, the uh, health minister, um, who who said that this is this is a great description of um, of our government policy. Um, so um, it was uh, that it was it wasn't just Laura Coons, but it was um, you know the, the actual government minister was. Uh, it went viral. It got millions of views. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the extraordinary thing about that was that. Uh, Nadine Doris retweeted that shortly after Matt Hancock had written um, in, the, in the newspapers that the government was not pursuing a herd immunity policy and it had never been its intention, but he obviously hadn't got the message to his health minister in time. Now, in terms of the themes of what the government got wrong, uh, I mean, there's been this, you know, suggestion which has been popularised by some commentators that Boris Johnson is just a raging libertarian um, who, you know, in his attachment to ancient liberties and the God-given right to go to the pub, uh, just couldn't bring upon himself to impose these levels of restrictions. I mean, in the week in which the policing bill, which could potentially suspend any protest in the country, this seems a little difficult to stomach. But do you not think the problem was, and this is where later Rishi Sunak comes in, is there was a, an, a, there was a false dichotomy between public health and economy, that the impact, I know behavioural science perhaps had a role, I'd be interested to hear what you think about that, where beha some behavioural scientists were like, there was no way the public will acquiesce to this level of restrictions for a protracted period of time. But there was a sense that this would be so catastrophic to the economy that it was beyond even countenancing a protracted lockdown, when actually clearly a public health crisis is an economic crisis. The threat to the economy is the virus. If you clamp down on the virus, then you'll have less of an economic impact. But that wasn't that the constant running calculation they were making, including in the run-up to the 23rd of March, which now Boris Johnson is briefing that he regrets not moving faster on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, and that that was that was exactly what Professor Stephen Riley was the first um, to vocalise. You know, in, in that paper in that in in early March, you know, he he'd, he summed it up um, and pointed out that that the, the more you allow infections to spread, the longer the lockdown ultimately has to be, 
and therefore the worst the worst economic fallout you know it's, it's, it's a very simple logic that, you know you could probably teach a child frankly um but obviously in the short term if you lock, lock down early in the very short term in the next few weeks you will suffer you know a worse economic hit than you would if you allowed the if you kept society open but it was incredibly short term short term this view um and obviously the other the other the other catastrophic fallout of not bringing in the lockdown is, is you allow many people to die unnecessarily um and that is the single most important truth of the pandemic and countries that have had um you know a fraction of our death toll and a fraction of our economic hit had leaders who appreciated that in you know in in, in march um and and you can see you can see that around the world and see australasia um in asia and also in scandinavia um and it's a lesson that was learned by um you know our own um the, the scientists on sage um and uh also michael gover matt hancock um even D dominic cummings who understand initially had been interested in the herd immunity approach um, in, in february and early march but he by the 14th of march had recognized that stephen riley had that this was going to leave us in the worst of all worlds and um but but despite that boris johnson and rishi sunak um seemed to have never learned it and and we ended up i mean we, we started writing the book um in early summer and we, we assumed that we'd be writing about the catastrophic consequences of one late lockdown but we ended up remarkably with with with, with three and before i ask you about because we're talking about march september and december essentially but masks and ppe should you want to just touch on what you what you found in terms of ppe and oh sorry care homes of course can't forget care homes the calamity of care homes so three big disasters i think care homes the seeding of the virus in one of the most vulnerable sectors imaginable, uh, PPE and masks. Just maybe just what some of your most striking findings about all three? Well, care homes, I mean, they, they shoved loads of people out of hospitals into care homes and including uh, people that they knew had the virus so that they would actually be cared for in the care homes. And they were putting people with the virus into the most dangerous place they could possibly be for the other residents. Um, and then what happened in care homes is that the care homes, once people became infected, they, 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 weren't, they were just not going to hospitals. And so it was, it was an absolute disaster because allied to that, as you were saying, as you were talk, kind of hinting at, I mean, at the, there was insufficient uh, PPE for any of the any, any of the care home workers, um, and so I mean, you know, it, there wasn't enough in in the hospitals. I mean, the hospital, you know, there were kind of. Do you remember those pictures of hospital staff who um, who had to wear bin bags instead of gowns um, because that's all all there was, and there just wasn't just just wasn't enough there, um, mm -hmm. and and as a result, you know. The, the carnage in the uh, in the um, care homes was was appalling. Um, by uh, June, one in every fourteen care home residents were killed by the pandemic. That's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, I, I've got a care home at the back of my house, and I see I was I would see the um, see the ambulances coming throughout lockdown um, to pick up people, um, and I think I think four or five people died there. 
I mean, George, what do you think in terms of you got that scramble, obviously, for PPE after the earlier disasters, and then you kept having these delayed, uh, you know, uh, decisions about masks. You got Sadiq Khan saying, why aren't we doing masks? Grant Shapps goes on TV and starts dis. I mean, you know, what, what do you think the most striking things there? I mean, uh, it seems clear that the, 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 their advice on masks that, I mean, I, I, I remember my, my mother-in-law's uh, from Asia and so she who was living with us at the time and so, and they all, they all wear masks fairly routinely there. And so she, she, got, she got me a, a mask in early March, which I was wearing on the tube. And, but, um, you know, the, the government had, was sending out the message that people, only people who are, um, have been advised to have a mask, you know, because they've either confirmed to have the virus um uh should sh- should wear them otherwise otherwise it, it, it was actually counterproductive um but i mean it's just it's just you know common sense that having a mask that stops you know droplets coming into you know coming into your um, mouth and nose was going to um you know protect yourself and also if you happen to have the virus on unknowingly having that around your mouth is clearly going to stop other people catching it I mean, and so i sat on that tube and i remember people were kind of backing away from me and um you know it made me feel like almost like a kind of pariah um and it seems i mean it seems clear to us that 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 that, that was motivated by the lack of masks available and they wanted to keep them keep them for for healthcare workers now Mm -hmm. that is completely understandable but not to be upfront and honest about that and to, to to tell us that um actually it's it's counterproductive i mean you know, maybe they meant that, but um, and maybe they, they genuinely, maybe they genuinely believed it. But it, it I mean, they, they clearly acknowledged that, that was completely, completely uh, misguided. Um, since then, yeah, there was a whole there was a whole fireside chat, wasn't there, between Jenny, Dr. Jenny Harris, the deputy chief medical officer, and uh, and Boris, in which she she he was poning her up to say things about masks and she was explaining with masks that oh you shouldn't wear a mask unless a medical person had advised you to do so because you know you kind of take them off they get wet and all sorts of things i mean it, and, and in the end i think they did admit really that that, that their policy on, on masks was expedient because that but they I mean, you know if they'd actually said um you should, it is wise to wear a mask, then you would have had the little cottage industry of people making masks that, um, that did later happen during the lockdown, if you remember. Everyone was, you know, you could, you could download your, um, your pattern from, from the internet and, and get your sewing machine out of the other section. Now, Rishi Sunak is one of the most popular politicians in the country. And yet, there's a very strong case to suggest he's one of the major villains of the piece. I mean, obviously, what you get after the first wave is you get during summer because of the success of lockdown, cases come down, deaths come down. We're down to about, you know, eight to 10 deaths a day during the, that period, this kind of the, the COVID lull. Um, but in this period, you get Eat Out to Help Out, which was then linked to one in six COVID clusters over the summer. But you got as well in this whole period, we didn't have a functioning test and trace system. Uh, you, you know, we ended up with the front page of the Telegraph, go back to work or risk losing your jobs. You got the university and college union releasing a, a statement entitled universities must not become the care homes of a COVID second wave. Warning of the consequence of my, of the migration of a million students traveling from every 
part of the country to every other part of the country. Who would have thought? Um, and then, you know, in September, you do get a return. COVID begins to roar back. And on the 21st, Sage calls for a circuit breaker lockdown, warns of catastrophe. Valance and Witty publicly warn of 200 deaths a day within a month, which is vindicated despite the mocking of people at the time. But leading, actually, Boris Johnson at the time was umming and ahhing, and the man who led the offensive against a lockdown was Rishi Sunak, and he brought in lockdown deniers to the heart of power to make the case against, and they won. Now, I mean, this this is a big, big moment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Rishi Sunak saw it, saw it his job as to try and kind of reignite the the economy um, um, but I mean, they had, they had, the, the World Bank had, had done a study of all the successful uh, nations in COVID and they said they quite clearly shown that uh, the way to deal the way the way your con- the only way your economy could thrive in a pandemic of this nature was you had to get cases right down to really really low levels and that would allow kind of space for your economy to, to thrive. Um, if you allow the cases to grow, then you, it's just going to lead to a longer lockdown and even more economic damage, as well as, of course, killing a lot of people. And we, uh, we, we, we don't really understand, because, because if you imagine that they got the first wave wrong and people could say, well, we're looking, look, well, Boris would say, we're looking at it with our retrospectorogram and, you know, it was a novel thing. And, you know, and, and, you know, what happened at the first wave was that, was that um, he did decide to, to lock down around about the 14th. Then he kind of dithered about it. And in between the 14th and 23rd, because the virus was spreading so fast, it was doubling every three days, it went up from 200,000 to 1.5 million. And when he came out of, of lockdown in April, do you remember, he, of course, Boris was in hospital. And when he came out of the hospital, um, he actually gave a speech in which he said, the only way that we can prosper as an economy is if we keep the R below one. Um, and so he knew quite clearly that it was important to keep R below one. But but then this seems to have all gone out of the window. And, and a lot of this seems to have been inspired by Rishi Sunak, who who is very much the ar- ar- architect of Eat Out to Help, help Out. Um, he was the, the che- treasurer who were cheerleading cheer Super Saturday or Independence Day on July the 4th, if you remember, which was the day when all the pubs opened. Um, and it's quite quite in- interestingly that day is the very day that we got to the lowest number of COVID cases we've had, which was 600. And from that moment on, it rose through July, August. So that when you got to that point in in September, you had um, you had actually you had figures such as Cummings, Gove, and um, and Hancock saying, you know, we've got to have a circuit breaker lockdown because cases are just shooting up and then you've got schools coming back, you've got universities coming back and all of those sort of things. And Boris seems to agree. And then then it's Sunak who has a meeting with him on the Friday evening. And they decide then to to, to put the circuit breaker on hold because um, that I mean we know from working in the media that that the newspapers that weekend were planning to go that weekend with with stories saying there's going to be a circuit breaker 
Uh, and then they kind of cancelled, and that, they were, those stories were stopped either Friday night or Saturday morning. Um, and, and, who sh- and, and, and so as a result of that, they, they have this meeting at Downing Street on, on, on the Sunday evening in which they bring these kind of people who have been strong proponents of a policy in which you know, the, 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 the elderly, the sick are, um, are protected and the virus is allowed to run riot in, in the... Um, in the population, um, and that's the decision that's that's taken. And and what's what's extraordinary about that is it that's whatever it was, twenty first of September, and and they allow it the infections to keep growing and growing and growing through the weeks in October. And in fact, Rishi Sunak actually gave a speech, didn't he, in which he said um, that you know we should only act with a lockdown once. Once hospitals were um, near to being overwhelmed, and, and then that's really—I really, mean, he's a very, very bright man, is Richard Sunak, and it's very, very hard to understand his logic. Well, I mean, so you allow the infection to spread and spread and spread, um, and then you're going to have to have a really long lockdown because you have so many cases, and and the result of that is not only. I mean, we've had an awful second wave death rate. I mean, I think we had 55,000 people died in the first wave, didn't we? And now I think if you look at the ONS figures, it's around about 145,000 now. So that's almost 90,000 people um, in the second wave, um, which had, had, had they kind of acted quickly to nip it in the bud in September, um, we don't know absolutely what would have happened, but... I think most people would would agree that, that 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 far fewer people would have died, and our economy would have would have not suffered as badly as it has. Because I mean, our economy is obviously suffering desperately now because we've had a, a, a lockdown almost throughout the whole winter. And before before I ask you about the final about what happened at Christmas, and and it is even if you go by the official, because obviously you've got excess deaths, you've got COVID on the on the death certificates you've got i mean there's there's different ways of measuring what the scale of the calamity all of which are terrible mm-hmm. uh, but even you know the official death toll half died have died since the 8th of december which was three months ago um but in terms of the the borders what the hell happened i mean it's astonishing i mean you could even you could argue earlier on well britain's are stranded abroad Get them back urgently. Close the border. What? What? No testing at airports. What were they thinking? I mean, <laughs> I mean, we, we, in our book, we we compare our policy on that to to New Zealand's, where um, Jacinda Ardern acted quickly, and um, and you can see they 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 had their uh, lock, their first lockdown and the first wave in being last year, and but because they've probably controlled their borders, they've all been living normal lives for. You know, for, for nine months or so, um, and their economy has has been recovering far quick, far quicker than ours. Um, so, I mean, it is, it is extraordinary. I mean, they they finally come round to this idea of hotel quarantine. Um, you know, almost a year, a year late, um, and it's it's just absolutely symbolic of the failure to learn lessons and that's i mean the brief we've spoken a lot to the brie families who we um and we tell quite a few of their stories in the book and they wanted an inquiry in the summer to force the government to learn those lessons to try and ensure that there wasn't 
a significant second wave and people didn't die unnecessarily like their like their relatives had and boris johnson and matt hancock refused to even meet with them um let alone hold an hold an inquiry um and when the uh, the Bree families then wanted to bring a judicial review to try and uh, force the government to hold, hold an inquiry, but um, the government refused to say that they wouldn't charge the families their costs if they uh, lost lost their case, and that meant that the Bree families could could end up potentially bankrupt um, if if you know and have to pay their money to the to the government's lawyers, which just seems morally bankrupt frankly and um, so they've since had to, had to had to fundraise to try and raise enough money to be able to, to 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 bring the case and that's why it's that's why it's taken this long and unfortunately in the meantime as you as you said um Owen, you know um the, the majority of the deaths uh from this pandemic have occurred so just before i ask last go on sorry don't go jonathan sorry i was just going to say although at the beginning um Boris seemed a bit confused as to whether we were stopping people in the border. There was this, this extraordinary video of him uh, visiting the public health laboratories in Collingdale in, in March, or was it end of February? It's around about then. And he's, and he, and he's asking, the, uh, asking the, the people there, and he's saying, uh, how, how does it work when they come through airports? And, um, and of course, we test all those people coming in from airports, and they say, uh, promise that, and no, 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 <laughs> that, that's not our policy. Um, but he didn't seem to know. Astonishing. Um, I mean, just before I ask a couple, final couple of questions, December then, I mean, and as I've said, you know, we, we got a tidal wave then of, of COVID deaths, horrific. When we got, you know, you got push notifications of eighteen hundred people reported dead in a twenty-four hour period each day. I mean, by January it was, you know, a horrific situation. And if you go by excess deaths, the peak was smaller but more protracted than the first wave. So, in well, however you measure it, a disaster. What happened? How do you interpret what happened um, at Christmas? Well, in in July the. Um... Sir Patrick Valance, uh, the, the chief scientific officer, commissioned a um, worst-case scenario report for the winter to try and allow the country and the, and the um, government to, to prepare um, for what might happen. And that report had said that if we allow infections to increase again, then the risk of a mutation uh, to the virus, which is, will make it more dangerous, um, significantly increases. And but as, as, as we just discussed, uh, Boris Johnson and Sunak ignored that warning. And sure enough, um, by December, it was clear that we had a, a far more infectious mutation. Um, and to compound that, they lifted the lockdown uh, at the beginning of December when we still had 16,000 cases a day, um, which was... Um, which is, you know, vastly higher than the 600 a day that we'd... Uh, where we'd, when we lifted the first lockdown, um, and the consequences were absolutely disastrous. You know, um, one of the most extraordinary uh, statistics that we we discovered in researching the book was that the first lock point of first lockdown, there was there were less than seven thousand COVID patients in hospital. At the point of the second lockdown, there were um, around uh, fourteen thousand uh, people in hospital. And by the third lockdown, January the 4th, there were 30,000 
COVID patients in hospital. So his prevarication, Boris Johnson's prevarication was growing exponentially, just like the virus. And he wasn't just not learning his lesson, he was actually getting worse. And the consequences in January were just absolutely, absolutely appalling. I mean, it's absolutely clear that that thousands of, of COVID patients died without getting the life-saving care they needed um, because there just wasn't enough intensive care beds or staff to, to cover it. And um, certainly in the first wave, the government claimed that everybody had got the care they needed, but the evidence for that in both their own statistics and from the testimony of doctors and nurses is, is, is that is complete nonsense. But they, they, they not only allowed that appalling scenario where, you know, we're, we're in a developed country Yet there was been three occasions in the last year where if you got ill, you could not you could not be sure to get the the best care you needed, and that's I you know, I had to tell tell my tell my mum and dad and granny that you know you you can't you can't go out because you can't do any risk because this is the only time in your whole whole lifetime that you you might not get an intensive care bed, and it's just appalling that 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 was allowed to happen. A couple of last cheeky questions. Uh, methodology. So when I studied history, we were always told when you're dealing with particularly a disaster, you have to manage the fact that lots of people engage in self-justification and try and point the finger at everybody else in order to absolve themselves of responsibility. And clearly in, in a, you know, the biggest peacetime disaster of modern times, there is an incentive to do that. So you might have, I don't know, Michael Gove trying to present himself in one particular light as being a voice of reason. How do you deal with that? How do you how did you deal with the fact that many sources may tend towards trying to perhaps portray themselves as being more sage than maybe they were at the time? Are you going to take it, George, or will I take it? Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, go for it. Sorry, left it. You know, it's funny enough, um, many of the people we talked to didn't feel the need to self-justify. They were just straightforwardly critical, to be fair. And I think that the government um, does fear an inquiry, and which is why we're not having an inquiry at the moment, because it will be quite damning of the government. Um, and when you talk about people, I mean, someone like Michael Gove, for example, I mean, he did seem to get the point at the end. Um, I mean, he wrote this um, this long piece for the Times. It was like a personal piece in which in which he explained the logic of lockdowns, um, which was exactly the right logic, which was that you you had to you had to hit hit it hard and, and quickly, and that that way you know you would you protect both lives and the and the economy. Um, but uh, that doesn't seem to. I mean, there seems to have been a bit of a split within the government over, over that, um, and it's kind of. And obviously, we don't always know who's arguing what within. Within, but there does. There do seem to. By that stage, there's, there do seem. To, there seems to be two camps, um, and they are on one side, and um, and, the, and the chancellor and Boris seem to be on the other other side. I mean, and, and, and you're right, Anne. I mean, obviously, people will try and um, pretend, maybe, or you know, um, re-engineer history to try and make it sound like they called it right, right at the time. But certainly, in our book, you know, we we we, we um, made every effort to try and gather evidence that what people were claiming they did at the time that they could actually evidence that, um, you know. Could, 
could they show um, any kind of record that they had actually issued a warning or expressed their view on something at that moment rather than just um, asserting they had. Um, and so that was, that was one of the big um, kind of due diligence processes we, we went through um, as we did the research, research for the book. Finally, um, I think this, this book is one of the most important books written for a very long time. I think it's a masterpiece. And I also think it, it performs a very, very important democratic service because I do think most of the media failed in their responsibilities. I think the official opposition has failed very badly in their responsibilities as well. We have the worst death rate, I'm looking here, currently, other than Slovenia, Belgium, and Czechia on the face of the earth. I'm not well. San Marino is too tiny to make any comparison with, but those other countries are very small. So, of a major country, no country is as badly hit as as Britain has been by this by this by the worst catastrophe since since the guns fell silent in 1945. And yet, I suppose what I'm wondering is, I suppose that you're urinating into a strong gust. They've got away with it. Mass vaccination has been a tremendous success, partly because unlike test and trace, they haven't handed it to private contractors and public bodies have done a very good job. Our National Health Service has done a very good job. Uh, and because of the failure, for example, of the official opposition to pin responsibility on the government, people are just going to be relieved. You know, what's, got, what's Boris Johnson good at? He's good at sunshine and optimism. And he will ride as as Britain becomes... As the days get lighter and sunnier and longer and Britain becomes freer, people will just want to breathe a sigh of relief. Thank God this nightmare is over. And because of the because lots of the media have, have, you know, they've done these shots of parks which looked busy, but actually if you actually go to the parks, you see people are socially distanced, but a camera at the right angle gives the wrong impression. Lots of people ended up blaming the public. They they think it was a failure of individual responsibility rather than a systemic failing by those who rule over us to say, to do their one most important task of, of any democratic government, which is to safeguard the security and safety of their own people. And therefore, as unbelievably important this book is, and everyone needs to read this book, They've got away with it, and and this book will be will will be for those of us who know how important this book is. This is extremely important, as I say. But for those reasons, the government have got away with it. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think it's you know it's, it's our job is to to tell, try and present the the truthful account of of what happened um, during the pandemic. And, and I, I think you're right. I think that, I think the, the media could have definitely done better in, in being clear about um, the implications of the government's actions and how avoidable so much of the death, economic damage, kids being out of school, you know, that didn't, that didn't need to happen. I mean, if, we, if you act quickly, you know, you look at, um, Countries around the world, their kids haven't been out of school for anything like the like the length, same length of time. Um, I think there's a kind of feeling that you know this was inevitable, and um, you know they did their best, um, and maybe they did do their best, but it it's it's a pretty poor, pretty poor best if it is. And so, um, yeah, that, that's the aim of the book is is, is just to um, 
present um, what we believe is the um, the true implications of of uh, Boris Johnson's actions, and then it's up it's up to the public, you know, to take the view. I mean, they they have done well on the vaccine, rather that, that's true. But whether it's the, whether that will mean that we don't end up with the most um, deaths in Europe and and the worst economic fallout of any G7 nation, who knows? But it, it doesn't. We're so far we're so far ahead on those on those um, dire measures. That um, it it would take you know it would be quite quite a quite a significant thing you know the vaccine rollout would really have to make a big difference for that to um, for that to that to be an outcome so um, let's see but you know all, all we can do is is um, put out the the truthful account and then people can make up their own mind because of course there will be another pandemic like this it's kind of these 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 this is not going to be a unique event there'll be another one soon it's worth learning these lessons to to work out how we do i mean i mean i george talked about the government doing the best they could but i it kind of seems to us inexcusable that you know it's okay so you've got the first the first lockdown wrong um, but to make that mistake again the second time and then to make it the third time and leave the country in the, this in the worst of all worlds, you know, most deaths and worst hit economy, um, is a massive failing. And you know, there's no, I mean, yeah, the, it's, it, the vaccine has been, has been handled really well. And ironically, I mean, you know, it's kind of, that's one of the one of the the the, um, the fruits of Brexit. But um, it, uh, but it does not absolve the government from blame. Um, for what has happened over over the last year, which has been a very very poor reaction to what is a novel problem, um, but it could have been handled so so much better. Jonathan George, thank you so so much, and everyone really does need to read this book, uh, Failures of State. It is one of the most important books written of our time, and it really does expose in brutal detail and yet so readable uh, the a how a inevitable disaster was turned into an avoidable catastrophe which has killed tens of thousands of people uh many people's relatives my own amongst them and uh it's so important to hold the government to account for what they've done and also as you know this won't be the last pandemic and if any good comes out of what we've just gone through at least some lessons can be learned to avoid this country having to endure the the unprecedented nightmare that we've all gone through. So thank you so, so much, both of you, for joining. And, and thank you for writing such a critically important book. Thank you, man. Thanks, that was very kind of you. Thanks for listening to that. Uh, exceptionally important. They, they really have done a democratic service. I think if everyone read this book, we'd be in a different situation than we currently are now with the government getting away with it. Uh, so do make sure you get a copy of Failures of State. It's it's genuinely superb. Uh, as ever, those supporting us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84, thank you for enabling us to do this. Uh, all those who have supported us on the support function in the description. Uh, hope you're all well, and we'll speak soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.